Before you drift off into one of our meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to share with you one of the new opportunities for our listeners at The Mindful Movement. This is Sarah Raymond, and I'm so excited to announce the expansion of our coaching services to include two of my good friends and excellent coaches, Nikki Dyer and Laura Cannon. Both Nikki and Laura provide their own unique skill sets, allowing us to meet the needs of our growing audience. If you want to learn more, just follow the coaching link in the show notes. As always, we are grateful for your support and look forward to working with you. Welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast, everybody. I'm Les Raymond, your host. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to have Clément Descroix on today. I hope I didn't botch your name there, Clément. That was perfect. Thank you for having me on, Les. Yeah, thank you for joining me. You have a new book out called The Idea Space. The Science of Awakening Your Non-Self seems right up my alley. So happy to have you on to expand on some of the ideas within the idea space. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm excited to talk about it. I feel like it's been a good time. It sounds like I was looking over uh, your history a little bit and you have a, a fairly comprehensive uh, background. Um, it sounds like you've created a lot of patents. You've written a book. You've done a lot of different work in like the tech industry. Um, can you give us a little background on where you're coming from that led you to write this book? Yeah, of course. So, um, as the name probably suggests, I uh, was born not in the United States, so born in Belgium, then moved to Spain and then moved here. Went to a small school with 20 people until eighth grade, then went to high school with like 700 people, and then went to college with like 10,000 people. So it was like exponential increase. Um, I studied mechanical engineering in college at Penn State at, because I wanted to know how the world worked on a fundamental level. And then from there, went right into work at IBM to do some consulting. Uh, and when I was at IBM, I was, you, just, you get a little burnt out from doing the corporate gig <laughs> after a couple of years. So I thought, you know what, uh, there was a guy I listened to called Naval Ravikant, who's the founder of AngelList. And he had a good quote where it's like, you got to do something that'll make you money while you sleep so that you can free your time. And so I was all about freeing my time. And I was like, I can code, not the best coder, but I read a lot. Maybe I can write a book. And so I was like, let's write an outline and write a book. And so I went on a two-year sabbatical, wrote a book, uh, released some cards related to the book and kind of just let it, let it wings fly and just kind of going with the moment, going with the movement at this point. Gotcha. And why this topic? Why the topic around um, awakening the non-self? Or I guess we're going to get into the idea around consciousness a little bit. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm a bit of a nerd. <laughs> uh, so I like to read kind of textbooks for fun in the morning. I think that's a good way to keep the mind sharp. And so um, I think my fascination for math and physics was always strong. And I always I started picking up a large interest in meditation and mindfulness. Um, I thought it was such a powerful tool. And for how good modern science was in physics, especially, it had yet to provide a sustainable model for the mind. And so... That was kind of the inspiration for the book. Kind of like, okay, let's see where it goes. You kind of just have the two words idea space when you start writing and then you're like, all right, I have no idea what I'm going to write now. Um, and I think for me, the the kind of guardrails was to write about things that had withstood the test of time. So for me, that was math, history, and physics. And then the idea space became kind of like the silver lining between all three of them. Okay. 
So how would you define the, I love the phrase, the idea space, by the way, but uh, how would you define what the idea space is? Yeah, great question. So the idea space is a mental model for your mind based on physics. So you're right, everyone has their own idea space. It's unique to you. It consists of your thoughts, emotions, sensations, perceptions, and the empty set. And your idea space has two key properties in that it is uncountable, which means it's impermanent. It's always changing from moment to moment. And it has zero measure, which means it looks like nothing. And we can do a quick test for zero measure. So it's like hold something in your hand, like your phone, or for me, I'm holding my AirPod case. Clearly you can see it, you can feel it, but if you close your eyes and bring to mind a mental image of whatever it is you're holding, you'll clearly see a picture of, for me, the headphone case. But then I can ask you less, like, hey, do you see the mental image that's in my mind? You'll probably say no, right? So that goes for all your idea space, right? All your thoughts, emotions, sensations, and perceptions is hidden from the outside world. And that's uh, and what so you're referring to as zero measure, that it's not, um, you can't borrow someone else's uh, perception. Yeah, exactly. You can't measure it. Like if I got a ruler and I try to measure whatever you're thinking, I'd get nothing, right? It would just look like nothing. And that's kind of the conundrum we're faced as humans. Just like, how do we share what's in here with other people? <laughs> okay. Um, well, does that depend on the tool? So maybe it's just not a ruler. I mean, are there like functional MRIs that could kind of get an idea of what someone's thinking? Or I don't know if that's um, in existence yet. But even if it yeah. isn't, but it could be eventually, does that um, does that like put a dagger in the zero measure concept or is it just like, this is a, not a set in stone. It's more of a scaffolding to work from so that you could create like practical, um, behaviors or actions based on a, a structure, uh, like a thought structure. Yeah. I love where you're headed with this. So I think fMRIs are great because they give us a good kind of light show of what's going on in the brain. It's not perfect, but it's good for a tool. Like it's a good tool. And I think in the near future with the way that AI is headed, I think we'll be able to get a nice little projection of everything we're thinking. So that'll be fun. Um, yeah, fun, terrifying. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I don't it's want people like, to know what I'm thinking. <laughs> I don't know if you ever played Pokemon, but there's a thing called like a TM or HM, and it's like an instant transfer of a skill. It's kind of like in the Matrix where Okay. Neo learns Kung Fu out of nowhere. I feel like right, if we can get to it. that, that would be kind of cool. Um, but back to uh, what you were talking about. So for me, the whole point of science is around falsifiability. You can only prove something to be false, right? And so you put forward a hypothesis and then you gather data to test your hypothesis and you either reject or fail to reject. If you reject, that's saying that it's false. Fail to reject is saying, hey, I looked at this from a lot of different angles and it's not wrong, but we can't but it's not right, right? You can never prove something to be true. And so with the zero measure, it's exactly what you had, what you said. It's, it's going to be wrong in the future. Like all scientific theories are like gravity was proved quote unquote wrong by Einstein by saying that it's the curvature of space time that causes gravity. And so in a similar way to this, the idea space is zero measure is kind of a hypothesis put forth so that we can better understand and talk about our mind in a way that's accepted by science so that we can approach these mindfulness techniques without the usual mysticism associated with it. So I think that's kind of like the goal of the book to make mindfulness and meditation not as woo-woo <laughs> as it may be today in some circles. Okay. Well, um, 
I'll be a nice wall to push up against because I embrace the woo woo. Let's. Uh, <laughs> I, I like wanna... it too. Don't worry. I'm on the same page. It's fun. Clement, I want to back up. You mentioned a word when describing the idea space: um, empty set. Can I back up? What 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 do you refer? What are you referring to with that? Yeah. So I think a great way to gather the empty to understand what the empty set is is imagine you have a table and you're describing what an apple is, right? You can have different characteristics of the apple, such as it's like, how, how much does it weigh? Does it have a stem? What's its color? And let's say that when you're going through the table, you realize that a value is missing. You're like, oh, no one noted what the color was. There's not anything there. There's nothing there. That's the empty set. And so we can translate the empty set to our mind. And it's just kind of like emptiness of thoughts. Sometimes when you meditate, you'll be listening to the birds around you and you won't really have any thoughts in that moment. And so the empty set in the mind is kind of like beginner's mind. You're able to kind of have your idea space that you have or your current mental state kind of kind of vanish for, for a moment. Experience but, without interpretation. Exactly. One Nen, sometimes they call it in Zen. Um, and when that happens, it's very blissful. It feels really good. Um, but the mind is a fickle beast. And as soon as you get no thoughts, the mind is like, wait, here's some more thoughts. <laughs> Gotcha. And then you kind of get it back into it. And it's like the whole saying of short moments many times. Where do you think those thoughts that we have or ideas for that matter arise from? Oh, man. If, if, I, wish, if I knew the answer to this, I feel like I'd be the world's not even richest person, just like the wisest person. I feel like that's such a hard question. It's like, it's, it's weird because everything you see is in the past because it takes time for like to go from point A to point B. So like you're seeing how the sun was eight minutes ago because it took eight minutes for light from the sun to reach you. And the right. same thing goes for like anything you see in front of you, like your computer. Yeah, it's going to be like microseconds or even nanoseconds, but still in the past. And so you get this weird conundrum of like, what is the present if everything you see is in the past? And kind of goes into what you're asking is like, where do thoughts come from? Like the thoughts are clearly the only things that are in the present moment, but is it the external world that creates the arisal of thoughts or is it kind of the thoughts that helps put a layer of perception on the world around us it's probably a little bit of a little mix of both right i don't know what do you think i'm not sure i mean i'm <laughs> sure when i was younger i would have assumed they just came from somewhere between the left ear and the right ear and i mean just in my experience of like noticing how my mood changes based on my current state of like gut health or something could dramatically change it makes me think well can a thought derive from i don't know the collection of microorganisms in your intestines or 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 are they just influencing how the brain might think but even when a a thought arises especially when an original thought arises like a real idea like um that's something that i try to facilitate usually unsuccessfully, but through some type of meditation practice, whether it's, you know, more traditional meditation, whether it's through some sort of um, musical thing, whether I'm creating through chanting or listening to, I will like create a bunch of stillness. And then when things are right, an idea, a good idea will just emerge and it feels original. I don't really know if it's original. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I feel it, it just kind of happens but it seems to merge so is that the universe creating that and we're just either an antenna that's resonating mm -hmm. with it 
or are we some conduit, just a vehicle? We're being just used by some greater collective consciousness to whip its ideas around until they manifest. <laughs> yeah, I think it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Um, and it really hits on the idea of free will, right? And on one hand, you have uh, geneticist Robert Plowman who says, DNA are just a bunch of dumb molecules who follow the laws of chemistry. And then you can do the same thing with like cells. They're just dumb cells that follow the laws of biology. And then we're basically the amalgamation of all these things. So does that make us just dumb humans that follow the laws of the universe? So that's like one hand of the equation. And then the other hand is like, okay, we clearly have this experience in front of us and we're clearly able to kind of witness what is happening in front of us. And if every moment in life is a choice point, then we have free will all the time. And so I talk about this in the book a little bit, uh, this concept of clopin, where something is simultaneously true and false at the same time, or when two opposing ideas are simultaneously true. Um, for example, like, have you ever seen the dress, the picture of the dress online? I'm not sure. I, I don't think so. Okay. Check it out after this. It's basically a black and blue dress, but for some people it looks white and gold. But in both instances, it's the same dress. So I think that's a good example of clopin because it's the same thing. Two people are looking at it, but it looks completely different. And so same thing with free will, right? We simultaneously have free will and we don't have free will, which I know Rick Rubin talks about this a lot, being the antenna for the receiving things. And I think that's right. But at the same time, you, in quotes, kind of have the ability to create how the world is around you. The ability to create, I mean, like by the way that you choose to see things, like the interpretation of the judgments that you're layering on top? Yeah, a mix of that and then your actions, right? Just because the mind is connected to the body. and But can body... you have an action that's not influenced by the collective momentum of all the moments that you've had leading up to that? I don't if, think so. So wouldn't that lend itself to there isn't really free will? And that everything you're doing in the moment is based on, the only reason you're doing it is because you have no choice, because the only way you know how to show up in the world based on all the things that have happened up to this moment? Yeah, and I'm kind of like, this is a weird approach to it, but I agree that there is free will and there is not free will at the same time. Just because like exactly like you said, like, it's kind of like the idea of fate where you kind of like are on this tether of a line. I don't know if you ever watched the movie Donnie Darko, but it's like, and he's got like a wormhole that comes out of him that shows him where to go. And I feel like humans are like that in a way, but at the same time, like being in the present moment is such a unique experience. Um, and being able to like make a decision on like what's going to happen in front of you is still like a choice point in life. And I think, it's a weird conundrum being a human. <laughs> it's like, but do you and nothing really makes a, sense. Even though there's a choice. So like every moment, yeah, there's a series of choices. But do we really have the say that we think we do in in making it? Like, do you know? Yeah. I don't know who I heard say this, but propose the question like, can you predict what you're going to think a minute from now? Like mm. if you, if free will was real, like why wouldn't you be able to just choose what thought is going to arise you're, if you're the yeah. one choosing how your life is unfolding i feel like you could choose like uh 
type of thought that you could have. Like, I'm going to be thinking about bananas in one minute from now. <laughs> and then just like focus on thinking about bananas until you could then. Force but it. it's, yeah, <laughs> you could force it, but it's not going to be like the exact thought that yeah. you want around the bananas. Yeah. And um, maybe, maybe they are both true somehow, you know, maybe there's, we're just looking at it. We're looking at that question through very limited tool set. I mean, you know, sometimes I think about our sensory instruments, the way that we gather in information. And first of all, we think it's just like the basic five senses or whatever, but we don't know what kind of information we're taking in that we're unaware of. And, and I lived to microorganisms, microorganisms earlier, like it might be their world and we're living in it because there's more of them than us. And how much are they taking in? And they're not telling us about it. It's just part of us and it's information that comes in. But like even sight, we see this sliver of visible light and we think reality is all the things that we see. But even if you look outside elsewhere in the animal kingdom, like I remember I used to, in a, as a teenager, I had a pet ball python. And nice. I remember learning <laughs> that the snake saw a, didn't see visible light that we did. I think it saw like infrared, like it had a very, so its reality looked very different. It doesn't mean the things that I see aren't real, aren't there, even though to the snake, they're not and, and vice versa. So it's like, we're approaching this question of trying to understand consciousness one from within it. So it's like a fish <laughs> trying to understand water maybe, but also it's like we're we're limited. We think that the tools that we have to perceive the information is like the legit best tools. And they might be like <laughs> pathetic tools and they're just the tools that we evolve with to survive based on what our needs were at the time. Yeah, and I thought one of the concepts here I love is this like, you touched on this earlier. It's like, are, is our consciousness just the amalgamation of the consciousness of all the other cells and bacteria that's in our body. And if that's the case, then is like the collective human consciousness, like the macro idea space, I call it, that's responsible for governments, words, money, and all that fun stuff. Is there a sort of like different entity to which our macro idea space becomes its own personal idea space? Good question. <laughs> I, I, it's funny i heard somebody talking about um like trying to define life and how if somebody was defining life from as an outside observer like from outer space or whatever and looking at earth they may look at it very different like if they're not looking through just visible light and they're seeing in whatever waves uh, <laughs> radio gamma what you know whatever parts of the electromagnetic spectrum the movement might look very different and where things begin and where things end will be not one, they could be totally blurry, but they could be very different endpoints. Uh, like if you were measuring where I begin, you know, me and I'm standing next to a tree. Well, if you're measuring and you're just looking at atomic particles and the carbon atoms in me are, instantly ex being exchanged with the carbon in the tree it might be hard to decipher 
what's what or what's life and you know where it begins where it ends you know the information loaded in the atom so the atom knows it's part of me to me is very interesting but also the person mentioned that outside observer might look at earth and think life is like the cities and they mm. wake up at night because you see the lights come on from afar and it's like oh look at these organisms they're like these big you know right angles protruding structures of buildings whatever <laughs> uh, they would perceive it and then at night they wake up yeah there's a good quote by uh richard Feynman, who's a physicist and it's whenever when he's describing like what is physics right he's like he asks the simple question like what is a chair and when you zoom in on the chairs part of the atoms are chair part of the atoms are paint on the chair part of the atoms are dust that fall on top of the chair so to say what a chair is very specifically is it's really hard, right? So we deal with in terms of approximations and idealizations. And I think in a similar way, you and I, if we did the same little sort of experiment, I would see less from here. But then I zoom in, I see molecules, I zoom in, I see cells, right? And if I zoom out, then you become kind of your house, a dot. But at all these different layers, it's hard to pinpoint where you start and where you end. Um, and so I think this goes an idea that's being into meditation and, and mindfulness is the illusion of self, right? Um, and that's the whole idea of non-self where I, your name is just an approximation you use to idealize everything that's happening around you in the present moment. And I think that's really helpful for people just because we attach a lot to I, like mm -hmm. I should do this, I should do that, or I'm sad, I'm happy. And whenever you attach, you're just bound to suffer because it's like those objects are impermanent. They're always changing. And when you try to grab something that's changing like water, it's not going to work out very well and could lead to some suffering. Yeah, that's that's interesting point you make, you know, the, the suffering that we create out of thin air because of the weight we put on the word I and, and the meaning to it. And, um, you know, you were mentioning the chair, like when you look closely, another thing that kind of boggles my mind when I get lost and thought about this is... Um, if you keep looking closer to the atomic level, and I don't know how accurate we measure this stuff, but the stuff I've read about it is that, you know, the atom is mostly full of nothing with little <laughs> pieces. And then if you look closer at those pieces, whether they're electrons and you zoom in far enough, they're pretty much full of nothing also, except for little tiny pieces. And then it keeps going. So it's like we create so much of a map of the universe in our mind, whatever, when ultimately most of what exists seems to be mostly nothing. Yeah. And like in space, in the big space, the universe is mostly flat. And when I say flat, it's like flat in the 3D sense where if I draw two straight lines, they're going to be parallel from each other. Um, but there are little pockets where the curvature changes. So like around a galaxy, it'll become spherical. And this is uh, akin to putting a bowling ball on a trampoline. When you put a bowling ball on the trampoline, the trampoline dips. And then I can put marbles around the bowling ball and they will gravitate around the bowling ball, right? And the same thing happens in space-time. You have a star or a black hole that's massive that dips the curvature of space-time and then everything gravitates around it. And so in this instance, two parallel lines will eventually converge, right? They'll start parallel and then they'll get closer to that point. 
And so because gravity brings them together. Yep. And so let's kind of go back to what I touched on earlier, where it's like gravity's not real. It's an illusion caused by the curvature of space time uh, in the same way that like it's a useful theory. Gravity it helps us launch rockets, makes our cars work and everything. Um, but it's not an end all be all truth. And I keeps think keeps me out of the NBA, though, man. Yeah, oh, man, you're telling me I love <laughs> I, I wish I could be in the NBA. Or do you, do you have a favorite? Are you a basketball fan? I mean, I like sports in general, but I feel you. It's like a. I've always felt like gravity's got the best of me when I try to play basketball. Oh, yeah. You try to jump, and then sometimes you just <laughs> land, twist an ankle. It'll just hurt. Um, um, sorry to but yeah, yeah no, 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 that there. was perfect. <laughs> I think, like, the, the last thing I wanted to touch on was, like, the idea that you said was, like, mostly vast, empty space, where everything in space is flat for that reason, just because there's not much matter there, and everything is just being pulled apart by dark energy that's just responsible for the continuous expansion of space at every point in time does yeah space do is scientists really understand what dark energy is yet or no so that's like one of the biggest enigmas in the world so the universe is made up of around 65 percent dark energy 20 percent dark matter and then the rest is baryonic matter which are just your atoms your light all the things in the standard model um it, wait dark my, matter and dark yeah. energy are separate so you yes. add, you could add those together and say that's making up 85% of the universe or? Yeah. So the whole idea there is like E equals MC squared. So energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. So if you have something that weighs 80 kilograms, you can convert it to pure energy. And if you were able to convert it to pure energy by, let's say, combining it with its anti-self, right? Uh, an antiparticle is the same thing as a particle, except it has the opposite charge. When a particle and antiparticle come together, they annihilate, creating pure energy. So if you have like an 80 kilogram person and an 80 kilogram anti-person and they collide perfectly, it would release 160 times the speed of light squared, which is 186,000 miles per second amount of energy. Hmm. It and seems so, so yeah. arrogant. I'm sorry. It seems so <laughs> arrogant for humans to think they understand the slightest thing about the universe when 85% of it, it seems like they, they don't understand. Yeah, it's a big question mark. And it's weird, too, because like, for me, it's like, you're always looking in the past, right? That's like something I think about way more than I should. And so you get this question, it's like, if I'm always looking in the past, and what's the farthest that I can see? Right? If I'm always looking in the past, and the, the farthest that you can see has to be the beginning of time itself. Right? And so that's where you get the idea of like the Big Bang coming in. And when you have the James Webb telescope coming up to go look at the earliest skies, looking at some of the earliest stars because you're looking back in time. And by looking back in space, you're looking back in time. And then going back to what you were saying earlier about like the antenna and the telescope, right? If your observable universe is a giant sphere centered on you, right? And your edge of your observable universe is the beginning of time itself. Kind of like a sunset. When you go, you know, when you go to the beach to watch a sunset, you're like, wow, that's beautiful. The sun's golden rays are reflecting right off the water towards me. Then your friend's right next to you and goes, no, you idiot. The sun's golden rays are reflecting off the water right towards me, right? Okay, and the gotcha. reason that happens is because you're both at the center of your own observable universe. So then that giant sphere, that edge is also hitting you uniquely, right? So in a way, you become the antenna for your own beginning of the universe. This is someone else has their own antenna for their own beginning of the universe. Is that That's kind of abstract, I know, but does that 
you putting up what I'm putting down? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm picking up. I don't know what to do with that, but it's fascinating <laughs> for sure. Yeah, uh, neither do I. I. Just like that's what I think about all the time. And like you combine that with the fact that you don't know where you start and where you end, and you just like get this super weird, wacky thing that we call life. <laughs> yeah, the Big Bang is an interesting theory. I, I'm not. Uh, I don't buy it quite yet. The idea that. I know that they say, well, every, when they look out there, everything seems to be moving away from it, each other, other th everything else, and at an increasing rate, from, I think. And, that's, and they yep. extrapolate that backwards and say that means everything started from a, a dot or whatever. But it's like everything coming from nothing for no reason is a tough sell to me. Like I could maybe wrap my head of, I think I've heard it as the oscillating theory where there is a finite amount of energy that's collapses on itself and re and repeatedly expands. And then when it hits a tipping point where it can't hold itself, it falls back and boom. And it's like a repeating big bang. I could maybe understand that. Cause I could, I could like uh, visualize the beginning or end or the fact that there isn't one but the coming from nothing is it's like well, something was before something created that it's that's yeah. a tough one for me and um you know i i'm fascinated when i hear people tie that to religious concepts or godlike concepts because there you know there is implied that there is an in, intelligence of some sort so like well where where is that <laughs> and you know these are circular conversations um but at the very least they're they're very interesting how do we use so my take is that your book is trying to take some of these ideas and making them useful so like given the fact that we you know we look at the world from this, our own beginning in every moment because the sun's shining towards us. How do we reduce suffering per se, or uh, live in a way that aligns with something that we care about value? Yeah, great question. And that's kind of the crux of the book and it's kind of the climax towards the end where it's the whole point of this is just to understand the difference between objective realities and imagined realities. Um, and it's kind of what we talked about earlier. An imagined reality is a creation of a macro idea space, a collection of humans talking and just creating a fictitious intersubjective reality, right? Something that's what Yuval Harari calls it. So for example, words. Words aren't necessarily real. We use them so that we can describe what's going on in our heads, right? So for, for at one point in time, Latin didn't exist. Then Latin was the, the main, everybody loved Latin. And now Latin's kind of a dead language in its own right. Uh, in a similar way, English wasn't used. Now it's being used and there'll come a time where it won't be used anymore. And so there's a lot of these other imagined realities like money, corporations, governments. And we attach a lot of our identity to these values, right? For instance, like you may be like, oh, this is my job. This is who I am. And a lot of your identity is attached to that. And the conundrum with all of it is that it's always changing, right? And so when you attach to something and it's changing, again, going back to the same thing, understanding that the world is impermanent, you're bound to suffer if you attach to something that's changing. And so I think the goal of the book is to 
this gives you the tools and the site to be able to see what's an objective reality versus what's an imagined reality so that you don't get attached to the imagined realities as much. And then you can live a life with a little bit less suffering, hopefully. Well, how do you define the objective reality? I mean, isn't on some level at all going to be to some degree subjective? I mean, what would make something non changeable or whatever, where there is justification in saying I am this or I like yeah. maybe like family. It's like I I am a father. I am the husband. Something that in your um, in your being, as far as you're concerned, is timeless and um, spans across distance or you know time or all the weird relative things, <laughs> gra gravity. <laughs> yeah. No, I totally agree. I think. They're definitely, like you said, fatherhood, relationships. Uh, those are very like objective things. Like you, you, you feel them. Same thing with like water, river, just like mountains. Those are just like objective things that exist. And those two are impermanent, right? I think the whole world is constantly changing due to dark energy. And in our mind, our mind is always evolving due to whatever makes our mind always go. Um, so I think it's... Even though, so it's, it's the same idea. Even if you attach yourself to the objective realities, you're bound to suffer just because they're going to change. I know one of my professors in school once said, being a parent is the constant act of letting go, right? Just because you have a kid, they start growing up, you start investing all your time and energy into them. Then, you know what? Snap of a finger, they got to go to college. And then you slowly have to kind of let them be them. Uh, and it's hard. And I think that goes back to that attachment to the idea of who they are and who you want them to be and everything and trying to let that go. So what strategies um, do you have personally, have you like integrated in your life to help you with some of these concepts? Yeah, I think a big one is just like always returning back to the sight, touch, sensation or whatever is present in the moment. Um, I think a lot of times we get lost in our thoughts, which is totally okay. That's part of what being human is. But just like going back to the breath is such a simple technique that's so useful for just breathing and just quieting down the monkey mind, as they call it. Um, so I think that's been great for me. And then also working out, I think is great just because the mind and body are definitely connected. And I think when you're able to take some of the, when you're stressed in your mind, it'll show in your body. And so if you're able to kind of de-stress your body through yoga or just lifting, running, playing basketball, even you're able to de-stress your mind in a similar way. So I think those are like the main techniques I, I use. Yeah, I think exercise is probably underutilized as like a stress management tool. And a lot of people are stressed out and they don't realize that in, in my, I, I run a gym, so I'm biased, but um, <laughs> I feel like it's the a more easy or I wouldn't say inviting, but it's an, it's a simpler on-ramp, if you will, than some of the other strategies. Like I've had people come to the gym and have had so much success. And if you ask them to like sit still for five minutes, it's not a chance, but they can get yeah. so many healing benefits, um, not just physically, but mentally and emotional from from the exercise, from the moving of the body. I mean, movement can be 
extremely nourishing for the mind. Yeah, and it's like that always like not freaks me out, but like catches me off guard whenever I talk to someone. I talk to them about meditation or even doing like a sensory deprivation tank where you kind of just like float there. People are like, oh, I can't be alone with my thoughts for an hour. I'm like, what? <laughs> like you're with your, you're like, that's like the only thing you always have. Like uh, that always makes me like blows my mind. <laughs> well, we don't get taught it. I mean, if you went through the traditional like schooling system in this country, you're not getting, and maybe it's different now, but you're not getting stopped along the way to be taught how to observe the mind and how you can with practice use your mind as a tool to some extent as opposed to you know be whipped around by your mind yeah and i think that's kind of one of the goals of the book is to make give consciousness enough of a foundation in science where we can use meditation and mindfulness techniques as the tools to explore it and then teach it in the same way we would teach the exact sciences like we teach physics in school we teach math in school i think it's important to teach meditation and mindfulness in school just to help reduce stress i know joseph goldstein who's kind of a guru was talking about one of his friends who taught second graders mindfulness and then at the end of the day he had them write a, a little note and they were just so cute. They were just like little kids going like, this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> it's well, just like, they're just- That's so promising. Yeah. Um, so I totally agree. And like, just especially in the school system today is like, I agree, it's weird. They don't teach you how to kind of use your mind. Um, you mentioned consciousness again, just recently. And I know we've already nerded out on some of this these ideas already, but do, do you think consciousness is, well, one, maybe you could define it in your mind if, if you'd like first, but do you think it's like foundational or fundamental to existence or do you think it's emergent? Like, do you think consciousness mm. emerged after there were um, like biological beings to be conscious or do you think it's more fundamental and everything is on some level like an expression of it? Yeah, oh, great question. So I don't think there's a true answer to this, but I'll give it, I'll give an answer based on my mental model of the world, which may be wrong. So it's just an approximation. Um, so for me, consciousness is the light that you shine onto your idea space. So if you have an idea space, you're kind of able to have that sort of consciousness. So you look at a dog, a dog can think, a dog can feel emotions, a dog can sense, a dog can perceive. Dog has an idea space, right? It has consciousness you know, in its own form. And I was really curious about this. So I did a little experiment where I explored the cosmic calendar, which is just kind of like the whole history of the universe, which is 13.8 billion years old, just condensed into a regular Gregorian one-year calendar. And I was like, all right, when did consciousness start? When was the first idea space? And there's no clear indicator of it starting, right? You could have the various points, such as like first life on Earth, like 4 billion years ago, the first eukaryotic cells that have a nucleus, the first Homo sapiens, the first genus Homo, right? Even before that, and those aren't really like clear, definite, like, hey, that's when consciousness started. So if you can't pinpoint exactly when consciousness started, is it possible that consciousness has been here all along? For instance, like stars, when we look at stars, we deem them not living because they're so different from us. 
but going back to what you were saying earlier is like what is life right if i think that the virus is a great definite great like example just because like viruses has so many characteristics that make it alive right it moves on its own and it kind of eats but like on the other end it kind of needs a host to reproduce instead of reproducing by itself and then we have stars that are what do you mean it moves on its own like a virus like a like if you have a virus infesting like uh, infecting a cell like it'll just like mosey its way around to infect it right is that on its own or is it being carried by the juice inside the cell or like the waves a, of yeah. the cytoplasm or whatever great question that goes back to the whole free will question of like is it the dna that's just blindly following the rules that it's given or is it kind of a mix of both hmm. and yeah so i think like when did consciousness start no one really knows and I think it's like a good question to ask yourself, like what is alive and what isn't? Because you'd think be surprised. I mean, we know plants are alive. Do you think they could be conscious? In their own way, yeah. Because like I remember seeing a study on like nature where they played the noise of a caterpillar that eats like the plant's leaves. Mm -hmm. And just by hearing the noise, the plant secreted the chemical that bites off the caterpillar. But is but that like, just a natural evolutionary pressure that is in response to an environmental stimulus like i've seen plants shoot leaves we had one over here a while ago that was like um it like took a 90 degree turn and shot up to catch a ledge like to catch a leaf of another plant to grab onto like <laughs> i was like well how does it know it's there like is that yeah. a conscious thing it, it's pretty it's obviously there's intelligence put into that like, if that's just in response to environment, like what environmental stimulus? How does it even know it's there? Is it the light that the leaf from the other plant is giving off? Is it heat that it's giving off? Like some really low level of infrared heat or something? Or is there like another mode of communication that plants have that humans just can't even like fathom? Yeah, are we right? just to like... total monkeys pretending like we're even getting <laughs> yeah. a grip on this? And it's like... There's like a whole world of stuff going on that we're just not in the loop yet. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe as we merge with like technologies more, we'll be brought into that loop naturally. Who knows? Maybe that's part of the process. But um, yeah, it it's a really interesting question. I've um, pondered con the idea of consciousness a lot myself, and I really don't have anybody in my house that cares to talk about it or is interested. <laughs> so it's it's nice to shoot around with you, Clement. I mean, um, yeah, this, same. Is, this is not my typical uh, questions on the podcast, but these are things that I do think about. Um, and I feel like everyone like thinks about it. Like, nope. You have I to know. I know people that think really? zero about it. Yeah. Like I not live, even one. I, feel like I just live once. with people that think no. absolutely zero about these things. <laughs> I feel like you have to ask yourself what is this at least once in your life in order to like wake up from just the years of just constant just like teach like you're just like so ingrained into this life right like for instance like your name like dogs when they have a name dogs don't have a name when they're born right then you like tell them their name like your name is spot your name is spot your name is spot and then one day you're like hey i'm spot and you're like yes good job same thing with humans like when you're born, you kind of just see the world for what it is. And someone's like, you're less, you're less, you're less, you're less. And then for so long, you just live like, I'm less. But like, if you go back to the beginning, you weren't less at the beginning. You were just, wow, just a baby just being like, what is happening? Right. 
so it's like yeah it's like life is weird man you got to think about it every now and then <laughs> so the flip side of um the self the i guess refer to the non-self as part of the title of your book awakening your non-self can you expand a little bit on what in spe specifically you're you're trying to lead people to with that line yeah great question so alan watts who's a, another guru has a really good quote where he says true self is non-self uh and so in this instance non-self is the simple fact that i your name is an idealization you use to approximate who you are it's not really who you are and so your non-self contains all the different fractal layers of your observable universe so this is great because it brings up everything we talked about it's your observable universe the giant sphere centered on you and it's unique to you so like if you're standing next to someone they'll have a sphere you'll have a sphere there's a lot of overlap but unique spheres second is where do you start and where do you end it's really hard to pinpoint that and so your non-self amalgamates everything in your observable universe that's unique to you right think of that sunset hitting you and your idea space all your thoughts emotions sensations and perceptions and the goal to awaken your non-self is to make you realize that you are so much more than your name right you are more than the emotions you're feeling in this moment you have a whole world in front of you and there's a really good confucius quote that really captures it all where it's everybody lives two lives the second starts when you realize you only live one yeah that's that's awesome yeah so that's kind of like the goal of the book just to like awaken like hey there's more to life than just working on the five doing your job going home binging netflix if you want to do that that's great but at least do so from like a more curious stage a more like mindful approach where you're like okay what is this that's like the key question you have to ask yourself what is this it's a question that's always valid that's the beauty of it Well, this was this was action packed, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there any before we um, wrap this up a little bit, Clement? Is there any other topics you want to talk on, or um, things that are on your horizon that you want to put out there? Yeah. So um, mindfulness is weird for a lot of people. So if you're looking for different ways to get into it, we release meditation cards on the website, theideaspace.io that you can check out. And it's a good way to expose yourself to some of the topics we talked about. Cause I feel you and I have been practicing for a while. So it's easier for us to kind of spitball back and forth on this, but someone who may be new, is just like, what are they saying? <laughs> um, so you definitely like get into it, build your own practice if you can. Um, and really just try to be curious about what's happening in life. I think that's like- So meditation cards, these are like cards with a, a prompt to consider? Or... Yeah. So I actually have them next to me, but like there's a hundred cards and each card has just like a different sort of meditation. Um, okay. So that's kind of like what's happening now. And then we're releasing a third product coming out in like the next couple months. That's going to be, have you ever played Cards Against Humanity? No. Or Apples to Apples? No. It's like a silly game you play where you like, you have a prompt and an answer with like five people you play. And then like someone chooses a prompt and then someone puts their best response now. Whoever has the best response wins. I don't think I so, know five people that'd be interested in playing a game with me. Yeah. <laughs> I could buy you some five people. You got the gym. Just go to the people in your gym and be like, hey guys, we're playing a game. <laughs> we're playing a game. Yeah, that'll go over well. Yeah, um, but that's coming out soon. So 
yeah other than that um, i've loved this conversation this was fun I like to yeah. think in these lights yeah this was fun i hope our paths cross again um sometime come on thank you very much the website again is ideaspace.io theideaspace.io the, the yep. the book is the idea space the science of awakening your non-self and that is available now you said so I yep. encourage people to check that out um it was really fun to kind of nerd out with you about consciousness and free will and um i'm looking for part two uh one day in the future so let's stay in touch man awesome thank you for everything les i appreciate it for the listeners out there always grateful for your listening i appreciate it and i hope you all have a great day <laughs>